CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello. Happy Monday. Welcome to The Hash. We're glad you're here watching or listening, whatever the case may be. The Hash Podcast is really popping lately. Thanks for tuning in on that over on the Coindesk Podcast Network. But hey, we got some show to get to. So we're going to start this thing off. A lot of interesting news over the weekend. Christy Harkin starts us off with some of it. What do you got, Christy? I have the first of our criming in crypto for the day. So last month, Axie Infinity's Ronin blockchain suffered a massive $600 million exploit. And there's been a lot of interest in where that money is going and who did it. And so last week, Nick Day and Danny Nelson of Coindesk, of course, broke this latest development. The U.S. Treasury Department has alleged that the North Korean hacking group Lazarus is tied to the attack. The Treasury Department added an Ethereum address to its sanctions list on Thursday, and wallet profiler Nansen had labeled the sanctioned address as a Ronin Bridge exploiter. And of course, because we have awesome reporters here at Coindesk, they checked it all out and followed the blockchain, found out it held 148,000 ETH at publication time on Thursday, and independently confirmed that that sanction wallet is indeed tied to the Ronin exploit. And so I love this story. I love it because it's showing how you can really follow the blockchain and figure out what's going where. And that our, our great reporters were doing their thing and, and following all the information. So Zach, I want to throw it to you because I'm pretty sure you are pretty intimately acquainted with this story. Yeah, I was helping out with this one. Pretty wild story. I mean, to think that one of the largest hacks in crypto history was orchestrated by allegedly state-linked actors over in North Korea. You saw that picture, Kim Jong-un in the black hat, black hat hacker extraordinaire over there, bringing in some serious crypto coins through ill-gotten gains. Interesting to watch this one unfold. And it's been a bit of an interesting kind of whack-a-mole ever since this news came out, right? We had Tornado Cash subsequently announced that they were integrating a chain analysis tool that would make it so that addresses blocked by OFAC would be blocked in the Tornado Cash front end. Tornado Cash, obviously, the privacy tool slash notorious money laundering mixer that people who get gains out of DeFi tend to send their funds through to make it harder to track. And so that was added to Tornado Cash, but it really hasn't stopped some of the flow going through that tool. It's a bit of like a whack-a-mole game going on, right? Where OFAC can only sanction so many addresses so quickly, right? It doesn't stop necessarily sort of crypto savvy users from 
spinning up fresh addresses and maybe being able to send coins through mixers such as Tornado Cash and others uh, through those fresh addresses. So it's kind of kicked off this little mini news cycle where North Korea is in the headlines in a big way relating to this historic hack. So yeah, very big story here. I think we're watching pretty closely. Jen, I saw your hand. I'm going to throw it your way. Yeah, I zeroed in on the last line of the article. So it said that the spokesperson said anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorists were critical choke points in preventing money laundering with stolen funds and called on the crypto industry to implement these types of safeguards. So we have the biggest DeFi hack in history. We have North Korea behind it. Unfortunately, Christy, I don't feel like when we hear Washington reiterate this story later on this year, they're not going to focus on the fact that we could actually track these funds and find out who was behind the hack. I think they're going to focus on just this, that North Korea was able to hack a DeFi platform, get all of this money to fund all of their poor behaviors and actions that are being taken in North Korea. And so I don't think regulators are going to focus on the fact that investors got their money back. I'm not sure if they got it back yet, but they are supposed to get their money back. And I don't think that they're going to focus on the fact that the Ronin Bridge is now working on fixing this so it doesn't happen again. I look forward to seeing how this plays out in Washington, but I think it's going to be bad from a regulation point of view. Yeah, that's probably true. I think that the way that Tornado Cash is implementing its sort of checkpoints, it could be helpful there. But I think part of the problem is I think that there's also a sort of an opt-in ability to it where you can sort of keep it private if you want to, but you can also choose to make your trades visible and traceable. And I think they're going to zero in on the folks that are not, or they may, I don't know, maybe they'll even go after Tornado Cash and say, you know, no, you're going to have to somehow go after Tornado Cash to figure out how they can make that safeguard mandatory for everyone. And I don't know if that's even possible. Will, you would know probably. I have some ideas of what could happen. I think the pressure point is liquidity for these things. So I think governments do go after mixers. They go after places where people are putting money and try to swap it for other people's money. So then there's anonymity involved. Like you can break like the transaction history just by swapping with each other. And that's what Tornado Cash does. Like the OFAC listing the other day where they like are blocking addresses and they're going to make it tougher to go to the front end. That's what they're going to do. So they're going to limit the amount of money they can go into a protocol like Tornado Cash. But overall, there's like not a lot you can do, right? Because Tornado Cash is like, it's live, it's decentralized, it's out there, it's a smart contract on chain. Like you'd have to go stop all these miners, you go have to stop all these nodes. It's a decentralized system. So what you can do is try to limit the amount of liquidity that goes into a mixer. And that would make the mixing itself worse and easier to track. And that's like the, I don't know if it's the beauty or like the downside as well of these new protocols, Elliptic or Chainalysis. If there's not enough liquidity in these mixers, those blockchain explorers and trackers can go in there and pick you off pretty easily. I mean, I think that's an interesting point here, right? There was sort of a lot of hand-wringing like, oh, Tornado Cash is censoring itself. They kind of are, but I think the checkpoint is a great way to think about it. And it's a permeable checkpoint. The front end, the front door is blocked to OFAC sanctioned wallet. But on the back end, on that smart contract, that's free game. That's open. The thing that is interesting about these conversations is that, you know, you can't do much, even if... If governments were to arrest the founders of Tornado Cash, this smart contract would live on on the Ethereum blockchain and still be serviceable and accessible to bad actors such as these hackers here in this case who pilfered a very large sum of money from a rather prominent project. So a lot of interesting conversations are coming up around this, both on the geopolitical side, but also on the technical end and questions around 
whether these networks are decentralized enough or truly uncensorable. A lot of interesting questions, a lot of big numbers, lots more to follow. All right, we're staying in the world of crime, however, and we're going to throw this straight to Will. Will, what's up? Yeah, a lot of crime for Monday morning. We're going to talk about Bean Protocol, which is hilariously named, but unfortunate series of events happened here nonetheless. $180 million was drained from this protocol in what was a flash loan attack. Basically, this is a stablecoin. Someone used a flash loan from another protocol to purchase up a bunch of tokens and then induce a large draining of value from the entire protocol itself. And then an attacker walked away with a few million dollars. Let me look at the number off the top of my head. I don't have it. $80 million. $80 million just to walk away with. And they also like donated to Ukraine at the end of this, which is really interesting. Zach, I want to throw this over to you. Like really weird story, which is just like pretty normal for DeFi, but like the name is weird. The attack is pretty fairly known at this point, but then like the outcome is also just kind of out there. Like the donation at the end has people confused, like what's going on with this. Yeah, Beanstalk. No, this one stood out to me as well. The Ukraine tidbit was a bit fascinating, right? Like, okay, I'm going to exploit a DeFi protocol and give a bit of chump change to the Ukrainian relief efforts. I think the, the thing that stood out to me beyond the Ukraine donation was the hackability of governance dynamics in DeFi. Someone was here and they said, okay, if I can borrow enough of this particular asset, I can vote myself into a major payday. And that seems to be what happened here. That's my understanding of what happened here based on my edit of this piece. And that to me is interesting. Like there needs to be these mechanisms that protect against this. And I think what happened is that particular vector sort of slipped through the cracks in the smart audit phase of these contracts. So interesting as this happened, $182 million is not nothing. That may or may not be the entirety of the funds that were associated with that project, which is pretty crazy. You don't typically see that. But the particular attack vector here, again, sort of like a governance attack executed via flash loan, I think it was really interesting and something to think through as these things hopefully get battle tested over time. Okay, this line here, as an editor, and Zach, I'm sure you can identify with this too, Beanstalk's smart contracts were audited by the blockchain security firm Omnitia. However, the audit was completed before the introduction of the flash loan vulnerability. So here's the thing. You've got a blockchain security firm auditing your software. They're like, it's all good. Let's go with it. And then you decide, ah, I'm going to tweak it a little. I'm going to add something extra to it. And that's the thing that breaks your protocol. As an editor who, you know, reads stuff, and then we go and we want to publish it. And the, the author then throws something in there that's completely wrong and doesn't tell us that they added the extra paragraph. <laughs> you know, that's essentially what happened here. The editor went in, said, we're good. And then the protocol decided to throw in something extra that broke it. And I think that's a really big problem. If you are getting something audited and you're making sure everything is good to go and you get the green light, don't touch it again. Or if you do, then make sure you get your security group to come back and look at it and go, hey, we good? And if it's not, then you don't run with it because there's no point in having a security audit if you're going to go messing around with things later. Like that's just dumb. And hopefully somebody else will learn from this mistake. I don't know if they will, but this is a recurring DeFi problem where either there is an inaccurate audit or no audit, or in this case, you're overriding your audit, which is just dumb. So I, I don't know. I'm a little tired of DeFi projects that are just doing dumb things and then people lose a lot of money and it, it's bad for the space. So yeah, that's my take on it. Anyone else? That was Jen? my exact take, Christy. And I just <laughs> want to know why 
We've stopped calling our crime segments Crime Time. I think that needs to come back. This is a full <laughs> Crime Time segment on a Monday morning. Christy, I completely agree with you. I think when it comes to auditing and DeFi, we have learned time and time again why it's so important. And I just wonder if maybe this update was made because they maybe knew the auditors might have a problem with it. And I hate to think poorly of people, but I don't know. Obviously, the code is law guy, right? I mean, these are exploits, not crimes, right? The code allowed them to do this. There was a gap in the code and they're like, all right, cool. I'm smart. I'll figure this out. I want to get someone to do like an in-depth profile about like the six to 10 people who are probably capable of doing these things and are probably doing them over and over again. A lot of these contracts, it's all open source. I'm sure there's a lot of duplication in the code base on a lot of these projects. And I think this is becoming a bit of a troubling recurring trend, right? We keep seeing the story of major exploits from, I don't know, not about no name, but sort of like lesser known DeFi protocols that still nonetheless attract enough crypto for the payday for someone to exploit them to be worth it. I don't know. I think there's some theories out in the space. I don't know, maybe conspiracy theories even about the actors are behind a lot of these things. It would be really interesting to dig into it a little bit and see what the process is. How do you find out about this, right? How do you find the needle in the haystack that lets you open this protocol and drain it of $182 million? I think there's some questions out there about who exactly does this that are interesting. And that maybe commission a will piece, right? Will goes undercover for the crime I time segment. And, uh, yeah. What do you think? Will, you game? Find these yeah. people, Will. Interview them. And I love to talk about NFTs. So here we go. Louis Vuitton is releasing new NFTs. The Louis the Game app is getting an update to incentivize players to learn more about its history and win PFP-like NFTs. So luxury brands have been jumping into the NFT space for probably the past year, experimenting with how to engage with their audiences. Louis Vuitton hopes to educate users on their history, increase engagement with younger customers, and embrace metaverse principles and digital fashion. So I think when this app launched in August, I tried it, I played it, I really sucked at it. Maybe it's because I'm not great at games. It was kind of janky, Christy, to, to the point you often make about some of these games we talk about. I was just kind of like running into things and trying to collect items so that I could randomly maybe be gifted an NFT. I never got one and I gave up. Supposedly since then, the, the game has improved. People's company, we knew, is behind the app and the smart contract. So that's a fun little tidbit of information there. Uh, but apparently it's catching on. So I'm going to pass this right to our luxury brand expert, Will. What did you take away from this story? Are you going to be playing the Louis Vuitton app in hopes of getting one of these coveted NFTs anytime soon? Of course, of course. I saw the 2 million downloads last year. Was that right? Someone fact check me if I'm wrong there, which is like astonishingly, like it's a huge amount of people playing this NFT game. But to your point, Jen, I think like these things don't really work a lot of times. Like they're bad. That's because everyone's rushing the door, trying to get them to work so fast. And so you basically end up with a product that really isn't ready. And then it turns people off. But NFT summer just keeps happening. It's been going on for like 18 months now. So I just don't think people care. They want to get the NFTs, like you said. Like, so you didn't get anything at all? You didn't get like one NFT from this game? I didn't game. get anything. No. So you collect items, you learn about the history of the game, and then they randomly give NFTs. And then depending on the threshold of points or, or things that you collect, you go into a draw to get an NFT. So it's actually quite difficult and hard to understand how I get this NFT. Honestly, if I wanted a Louis Vuitton one, probably I would just pay for it. But yeah, I guess I could just go to the secondary market. But 
yeah, it was difficult and I didn't enjoy it, but it wasn't made for me. It was made for people who are younger and who get these things much more than I do. I want to try. I want to try it out. Seems like, you know, whether it's Gucci, Louis, Fendi, Prada, everybody's <laughs> doing this thing these days. I guess they're looking for a way to stand out from the pack, right? We saw, I think it was, hold on. Yeah, Dolce Gabbana. Dolce Gabbana did a big one. And they sold like $5 million in rare NFTs. I don't know if there was a gamified aspect to it, but hey, shout out to Louis for adding a little bit of gameplay to it. Interesting to see that that's bringing people into the fold in terms of the app experience. You know, it's like that play to earn thing, right? We keep hearing about this play to earn, you know, like click to earn, work to earn, learn to earn. I don't know. Engage to earn is sort of this thing that I think we're going to see more of from Louis Vuitton all the way down to just, you know, smaller brands who are looking to sort of incentivize online engagement through the power of the tokens. So interesting to see who's next to sort of integrate NFT with play to earn sort of in the high fashion world and elsewhere. But those are my kind of thoughts. Christy, I'll toss it to you. Yeah. What I like about this is that it doesn't come across as a big brand uh, going for a big cash grab on trying to sell a whole ton of NFTs. They're investing in brand marketing and making gamification part of that strategy. I, I, I like that idea. I mean, obviously, you'd prefer that they launched with a game that wasn't janky. but if you're going to make a play in the space and try to engage people with a game as opposed to just like here, buy a skin or buy this and that, and that's the only way that you can get in on it and make it seem like, you know, we're getting into the space and being all cool, but we're also starting this huge cash grab of trying to sell their NFTs. I kind of like the game aspect better. It seems it's a marketing play, but it, it just feels a little more grassrootsy. Although grassroots and high fashion, I'm not sure how, how hand in hand those things are. I just want to say when I played it and called it janky, it was at the very beginning. And I'm sure that the game right. has improved since then. And I must say that the graphics are actually very beautiful and in line with the Louis Vuitton aesthetic. And I must say, actually, Vogue Business, I subscribe to the Vogue Business newsletter, and they've been doing a really good job at covering these luxury brands getting into the NFT space and metaverse. It was actually quite surprising to me that I was getting more metaverse news from Vogue than some of the other media publications. I saw at the end of this article, um, the executive VP at Tiffany & Co is actually the chief executive officer at LVMH's son. And Tiffany had launched, I guess, a pendant that CryptoPunk owners could claim. And I thought that, that was really cool. So if we start thinking about luxury brands, the notoriety and the society that comes with it. And that almost transfers into these, into some of these projects. If you think about Board Ape Yacht Club and, and CryptoPunks, and if we can kind of bring those two together, I think that's kind of cool. But Zach, I saw your hand go up. I don't have a CryptoPunk, but I saw that pendant and that pendant looks sweet. The CryptoPunk pendant right? with like gold and the diamonds, <laughs> little pixelated diamonds. That was tight. I really want one of those. So if anybody wants to get me a little birthday present, come on up. That'd be pretty cool. But oh, yeah. <laughs> if Kate Spade ever got in on the action, those are all my Kate Spade purses behind me. Oh, wow. <laughs> there oh, we go. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. All right. I would absolutely play a Kate Spade game. <laughs> they got in on it. Deserved. All right. Don't buy me a CryptoPunk pendant. Wink, wink. Let's go to the Annals of crypto advertising spending. We're going to Times Square, New York, Manhattan. Maybe you heard of it. Algorand Foundation is spending some big bucks ahead of Earth Day this week to buy some advertising in Times Square and to make a nice little commentary on both crypto's energy consumption and the energy consumption of Times Square advertising billboards. 
this is one of those things that I see every once in a while. Crypto protocols spending some money to get their name out there, especially in Times Square. This one, a bit clever at least, I'll give them that. And it looks to uh, dissuade folks of some of the bad associations with crypto itself. Obviously, the distinction between proof of work, mining, and proof of stake consensus mechanism is a bit lost on most folks as crypto goes mainstream. And they're trying to correct the record, as it were. I'm going to toss this one straight to Will. Will, Algorand, Earth Day, Times Square. What are you thinking? I think they're just trying to be relevant again because most people forgot about them. And that's about the extent of my thought on the entire topic. Christy, I want to throw it up to you, though, and get your take on it. Damn, you took exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> I think we just all vote on that one. Not much more I was going to say about it. Like Algorand is, it's it's out there. It it chugs along. It's its thing. It does its thing. Yeah. C- congrats. So them. far as it does its thing. Oh, yeah. come on. I mean, it's, they're all just competing for the same mindshare, right? Like whether it's Algorand or mm-hmm. Avalanche, there's all these sort of speed near, for instance, there's these speedy, you know, newer generation proof of stake chains that think they can get a slice of the DeFi action. And it's interesting uh, to see whether it's actually, honestly, whether it's DeFi or NFTs, we've seen Tezos NFTs become a thing a little bit. They are vying for a bit of that attention as ESG concerns definitely like remain top of mind for big time institutional investors. On the back of what you were saying, Zach, the NFT projects and the DeFi projects that are on Algorand are all targeted to an audience that care very much about climate. And so I think that the billboard is clever. And I think that all of Times Square is going to go dark for an hour at some point, right? After this billboard is up. So I think it's clever. I think people in Times Square are going to see it. They're probably not going to know what Algorand is. And when there's an NFT project or something that's interesting to them, and they see that Algorand name as the blockchain that the project was built on, they'll think, ah, yes, that's the blockchain that cares about the world that I live in. And Mm. so it is an interesting way to spend marketing dollars. Hopefully it will pay off for them in the long run. What I thought was kind of funny, though, I did a Google of Algorand. So I was like, oh, if I was in Times Square and I saw this and I didn't know what it was, I would Google quickly. And TravelX, I think, is the project that is built on this chain. And they've just launched an NFT airline ticket with a European airline. And I thought, hmm, what opposing headlines? An NFT airline ticket to fly on a plane against this this billboard that says we care so much about the climate. So I thought that was kind of funny. That's it. Well, I will say last Earth Day, I made a pledge to go carbon negative. And I think there's some work on sort of the automation end of that that will probably be announced a bit later on. But yeah, the fight for the green blockchain continues on as people think about blockchain as killing the rainforest with every NFT minted. Ah, that was a good thought to close on. Let's. All right. That was the hash for today. Good times, everybody. I'm Zach. That's Will. There's Jen over there. Christy, up top. We're the hash today. If you watched us, that's great. You can also listen to us again or for the first time on the Coindesk Podcast Network. The hash for your ears. Check it out. All right. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Zach. Hope you're having a good day. See you soon. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.